Hey, <clears throat> this is Isor. This is a podcast about, you know, how do you get good at realistic painting? And then what do you do with that skill after you have it? Today's episode, you know, it mostly focuses on the second part of that question. The guest's name is Caleb Nodell. Nodell, I probably should have checked with them on how to pronounce his name. But he lives in Kansas City, Missouri. He spent time with Odd Nerdrum over in Europe, did the, the whole European thing, and he came back uh, for grad school to America. We talk about how do you keep your work fresh. I would call that the theme of this episode. And I'll just let him take it away from there. First, again, if you want to look at the paintings that we're talking about in this episode, you can find them in the show notes. Press the little button, go and then pull up your, you know, press the purple little links and go to the website and feast your eyes upon the paintings by Caleb. They're very mystifying. So, I know you via, I guess I, I randomly came across you on Instagram, right? But in the way that uh, it, it felt like I randomly came across you, those actually probably algorithms and stuff. But we, uh, you are another IU boy, I believe. <laughs> but yes. All my guests so far have come from IU. I guess that's a coincidence but not really when did you finish up at uh at iu i finished up 2016 2016 were you in grad school with zach were you guys no he left just the year before i i came okay and yeah so yeah he was kind of convincing me to go oh okay into it. at least tell him you know talking up the school and it was one of the few schools that I applied at so I see he you got him into odd nerdrum and then he got you into IU is that what I'm hearing uh sort of yeah I, okay. I don't know I, he probably did talk me up at IU I can't remember how that went down um and yeah I forget that I may have helped him into nerdrum <laughs> how did you guys it's, meet it's been so long uh how did we meet I think he contacted me just through the internet one time I think I remember seeing. It's funny. I, I think I remember seeing his uh, his paintings on Facebook. I think maybe, maybe they've been friends, and um, he had a lot of interesting. Like, I think some of his work was like pornography paintings for a while, and I was just really interested in who this guy was. And then, yeah, I think we got to talking, and he was like, "Hey, you know, thinking about nerd rooms," and I was like, "Sure, yeah." And so, and I didn't even know. I think it was. Um, I want to say it was the last time that I went, the third time that I went back to Todd Nerdrums, which would have been in 2013 or somewhere around there. And he, he ended up being there with me, which I didn't expect. Okay. And <laughs> I, it sounds rather silly, but to be completely honest, I felt like I had gotten the most out of what I was going to get out of the Nerdrum experience after being there twice and um 
the third time I was hoping to go back and kind of stay in Paris and just paint because he had two spots and there were other painters who would just live in Paris and paint. Not that I didn't want to be around the odd. I just kind of wanted to spend my days getting a lot of the work done and knocking this stuff out. And uh, when I got immediately to Paris, he called for me to come to Norway and uh, <laughs> I ended up being there for a month when I thought I'd be there for a week. Hmm. But that's when I actually shared a room with Zach. So we were, oh, huh. we were like bunk mates in this room together for like a whole month. Yeah. So you, you guys met via uh, Facebook or the internet. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's the way a lot of it has worked for me, at least. I got over there from meeting a guy through Facebook. Okay. Yeah. I hear about people. I hear about like, it seems like in that era, Facebook groups were a bigger thing than they are now. And yeah. I kind of, Instagram is whatever. It seems like it's better for meeting or just like discovering new people, but it's worse for actually creating and bonding community. Uh, yeah. So I don't, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just the impression I've gotten. I, I've, I've heard oh, other people yeah, talk I, about I, Facebook I, in that era. I think you're right. Yeah. I think, uh, early on with Facebook, there was a point at which it kind of started coming to a, a nice place for artists where a lot of the work was being passed around. Artists were always like connecting with each other. I had lots of people on Facebook who were artists. And so the posts that were going out were being seen by many, many artists, many groups created, many things commented on. And I think that really brought a lot of artists together. But I think with Instagram, it, it kind of condenses itself down into maybe more of like smaller groups of artists who might share chats, group chats, um, might comment on each other's work. But yeah, the, the larger experience, I think it's harder to have. Yeah, I wonder what it would take to get that back. Because I feel that Facebook group is really valuable. Mm -hmm. There aren't really many forums. I don't know of any. I know Wet Canvas. I don't really know of any other uh, forums, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, Wet Canvas. I've checked that one out a few times, but I've grown kind of apart from all that stuff. Yeah, I used to dig in deep to you know read everything about what was going on and. Uh -huh. Uh, keep up with all the, the gossip or the stories or whatever was happening and and these uh these particular sets of or sectors of the uh, art world but um i have no idea now now yeah do you think um, it's the getting uh maturing and just like finding your own little niche and not really needing so much the yeah the big think, picture i think uh i was a very hungry student early on yeah and then i got to a point where i realized that was probably hurting me more than helping me oh interesting um, yeah how do you mean by that so when i was younger like because I, I was i didn't grow up in an area where we had a lot of access to art and uh really to me the the high point of painting for person living and my time was like thomas kincaid it was that commercial art you know and uh i remember thinking well, that's it, I guess. That's where you go or you get into this like big art world thing, which I didn't understand anything about being from a small town in rural Missouri. Um, but when I got to college, that started, started expanding a lot more for me. But I grew up conservative and uh, I grew up with a lot of traditional values. And so for me, it was like I wanted to see signs of skill. I wanted to see signs of talent, things that reminded me of the old masters and everything else. Um, Plus, you know, you just have that constant idea that, like, 
contemporary modern abstract is just a bunch of BS and stuff, you know. And I'm sure a lot of that still is going on today, or I've seen a lot of it going today. But uh, yeah, I think I saw I was hungry to like figure out what the secrets were, what the lessons were, trying to gain as much knowledge as I possibly could. So I was reading all kinds of books. Um, I remember a lady named Juliet Aristides had a lot of good books at the time that kind of passed around these uh, Italiers and uh, which ones were doing what. And I came across uh, some kind of documentary or trailer for a documentary from something. I can't remember how, but it was on um, the Charles Cecil Academy in Florence. And uh, I reached out to them and you know, wanted to go and study there for a month. And that was an amazing experience in my life. But um, I also learned a lot like what I didn't necessarily want to do. So, And Charles Cecil? I've actually never heard of Charles Cecil before I came across mm. your, uh, your background. So, uh, yeah, it's yeah, what's it like there? So Charles Cecil, um, here's the fascinating thing. So there, there is a, there's this lineage that goes back to David, I believe. And from David, it goes to like this guy named Jean-Leon Jerome. Uh, right. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it goes up to like a guy named Gamel, R.H. Ives Gamel. And, uh, you know, he has literally a lot of great work, I think. Um, and that sort of moved into, I can't remember where it branched from there, a guy named William Paxton, I believe. And William Merritt Chase may have came out of that same lineage. But this somehow got passed into um, people like uh, Florence Academy. With, I think they were taught by Gamble, actually. Like Dan so, Graves was taught by Camel? I think Dan Graves is so Dan Graves and Charles Cecil both worked in the same academy at one point. Oh. But they had had like a falling out over a model that they were both interested in. Oh, you know, I remember hearing about that. Apparently, from one of my friends, is it goes as sort of like a, a Star Wars tale of the dark side and the light side. And for him, the light <laughs> side was Charles Cecil, but. Um, <laughs> uh, so they, they split, and then you also have Angel Academy, who I think he kind of came from Pietro and Agoni, that lineage, but I think he was still somewhat connected to them. And they all did very similar things, all working in sight size technique, which I don't know who you brought into that. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. We, we didn't do it uh, okay. at Grand Central, but yeah, okay. I'm familiar with it. That's what pretty much they only did, and it was a lot to get used to. Um, and I think in a lot of ways it really helps a beginning student because it gives them a lot of confidence, but mm. it also can be a major crutch too, because you're, you're always comparing directly with nature as right. the surface. And, um, so through some time you can actually start to match information, but as far as like learning how to draw off the cuff, I don't know that it helps too much, but it's a great technique and it's not really known so still I don't think it's really taught or known. Sight size. Yeah. Okay. But I do think it was a portrait technique. So I think a lot of the old masters were using it. Right. Yeah, it seemed like there was more there was more of what we'd call cheating in the old days than we assume. That I, I don't know yeah. too much about that, but I, I it <laughs> does seem to me like there is the you know equivalents of like photo transfer or working from photos or tracing or uh, yeah. there was more of that stuff or like using life cast for sculpture it seems like more of that was going on 
in the early days than I assumed at least. I don't know how much. Yeah, no, I, uh, cheating is an interesting thing. Like I think, um, for me, it never anymore, it has, doesn't have to do with the process of how you got there, but the process leaves its mark. That makes sense. So it's just like, um, you know, when you're a kid and people trace how their lines always had a distinct look to being traced. Yeah. Like they didn't quite run together. They didn't quite have that tight flow, but they had kind of like a surface like match of the thing, but it was disconnected. Right. And mm -hmm. so I think a lot of techniques that you could use are like gritting, for instance, gritting always has a kind of feel to it that it's hard to explain. But like, I'm really interested in process and how you get there a lot of the time. So I think it's possible to read it. I just don't know if it's always a sensitive or maybe it requires another sensitivity, extra sensitivity to pick up on. Um, today, everything seems pretty surface oriented, especially since most images are being read off the internet. Um, what do you mean by surface oriented? I think uh, it seems like a lot of images are, it's about like the first hit of the visual experience. Yeah. And so for like a lot of paintings, they might be more sculpturally oriented. People might actually care about the texture quite a bit. Right. And that's really hard to read through the experience because paintings are right. seen through light and light refraction. When you photograph something, it's one particular way of capturing that light refraction. And, um, to me, the magic of continuing with oil paint is that it has that sort of breathability, that sort of constant flow of light coming forward and backwards from the bottom of the canvas to the, you know, through the layers of paint, especially if you're using glazes or anything else. So it can create a um, kind of a wonderful experience that um, I, I don't always. Uh, one example I, I would say was like, this may not be a great example, but Rembrandt's painting, for instance, uh, most of his pictures of his work, they look like they're from the 70s you know, or 80s. And a lot of them are really yellowed and kind of worn out. And when you see his work in person, it's not really always that case. I mean, some of them can be yellowed, but a lot of them do have color nuance. Um, yeah. That doesn't, doesn't register. So. so at Cecil, um, was Cecil like a six hours a day, every day kind of thing? I know that Angel is a six hour a day thing. Florence um, is not something like seven or eight or maybe six I don't know uh were you doing like life drawing six hours a day kind of deal um yeah pretty much we had okay. uh we would start at like 9 a.m and usually go to about like four or five or something we'd have a break a couple breaks um but yeah primarily it was it was every day except for the weekends we'd have those off and then we'd go back to Start back on Monday through Friday. Okay. Yeah. And you did that. Uh, how long did you do Charles Hessel? That was just for a month. Okay. Yeah, in the summer. Oh, like a summer um, thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I wanted to stay. I almost stayed. But uh, it was pretty expensive. And it was really the – it was – kind of depending on whether or not I want to finish out undergrad and I talked oh. to my father about it and the decision seemed like it'd be good for me to have my undergraduate degree I see but at the time it didn't make much sense because I was like well really if I'm going to try to get into painting and become a painter but 
but then there's that fallback of teaching that everyone kind of always suggests. Yeah. So right. The yeah. um, so from going to uh, ateliers after maybe not after post grad, but um, when you when you were deciding on post grad, you know whether to go to grad school. Uh, what was the decision like for going to grad school to going to an atelier to going to uh, nerds? How how did you make your decision on IU versus um, an atelier? Um, I think IU for me was a lot about uh, getting a getting a place where I was gonna be uh, broken apart from basically nerdrum. That makes sense. Because uh, I, I started painting in college, but I didn't really paint a whole lot. And really, it was more of a matching information type of way of painting. And I wanted more than that. And, and uh, I was also going through a lot of like, I'd grown up like conservative Christian. So having that background, um, it was like once I stopped sort of believing in that or believing in God or whatever I'd been believing right. at the time, it was a weird point in my life. And I think I came across Rembrandt and Nerdrum at the time. And the, the, something about the philosophies that Nerdrum was talking about were interesting to me. They felt kind of new age for me and maybe to other people, they seem very old fashioned, but to me, they were like, they were the thing for me to kind of, you know, put my, mind towards at the time and uh, I liked what he was talking about and I liked the images that you know he was making so um, I reached out to go study with him and that's really where I learned how to paint and uh, I picked up all of his habits and uh, I didn't want to paint necessarily just like him but I didn't really know of any other way I couldn't see any other way to paint I was like how do I do my own thing when he creates just this, the texture that I think is just perfect and the right colors that I would like to use. And there's just like a whole list that I felt like he was checking off that I thought was the right way of going about it um, at the time. And so when I left that, even that last time, um, I remember struggling in my own studio at the time to try to make anything. And I, I had written lists down on how about how I was going to go about painting differently to create my own work. And, uh, I just couldn't make the breaks I wanted to make. And I, I, I was trying to paint more modern, whatever that means at the time. And that really wasn't working out for me. And uh, I was like, I think I really just need to go to grad school and uh, be challenged and, and have all this stuff kind of stripped away and put myself in a really tough place where I would yeah. be heavily criticized and, you know, talked to. And, and think about things other than pure craft of painting. Yeah, right. Just, just other people's ideas, really. That's what I wanted to be around. Not mm. in particular one way of doing things, but right. Um, I wasn't really seeking skills anymore. I was seeking perspective, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me. That's because Atelier totally seemed like there. That's the place you go if you want to purely focus on craft and exploration yeah. is not really a priority um at those kind of schools um, yeah i mean some of them you can't use certain colors or they'll kick you out you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, i mean it sounds funny but it's actually 
true like charles cecil you know somebody ah. get kicked out for using it. really yeah <laughs> like what color was use, it it was like a really bright green apparently that some guy was told not to ever use that color again <laughs> the time you spent with Hod, do you look back on that really fondly is it something you uh exhausted how do you how do you feel about your time with odd um my time with odd was really really great in a lot of ways i i really enjoyed the experience um that i had there it was uh it was pretty much exactly what i thought i was gonna get and and i really loved it and and i really got along great with him and um you know we we really connected and uh i think we thought about a lot of things very similarly I think I always have leaned towards design a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Not that I was like wanting to get into like um, minimalism or anything, but yeah. I think what aggravated me about my paintings is they were just, they were often too brushy, too messy, too um, fought with. Cause he likes to fight with the painting. He likes mm-hmm. to scrape it. He likes to sand it. And after a while I got to the point where I was like, I just want to have like, like, like a signature. I just want to like make everything of sort of a one-off, you know, I want it to come together, but I want, I want to do it right then and there. So it's kind of like Sargent did, but not like where I pretend like I was, you know, had gotten there from the very beginning. Do you that mean by sense. that, that you want to do your, you want to execute your thing in one sitting in one go or no, how does it differ from fighting with it? So, like the, I don't know how to explain exactly how Odd would go about it, but the way I would go about working in ways like Odd would be like, I would create almost like a mess in the canvas sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'd create like a monster. I would throw texture down, paint, let it dry. Then I'd sand it, scrape it. I would try to create variety and accidents or, uh, you know, interesting areas by just almost acting randomly at the beginning. And then yeah. trying to trying to rein in the chaos or something. But that that's really kind of different than the way Otter work. He would work by starting with drawing and solid figures. He would start to progress, and then I think it would look too um, put together for him, and he would hate that. And he would paint thickly first, so he was at the point where he could start kind of scraping, sanding. He would go on top of things. He would just really work into something over time. He would. Uh, he would take a color and glaze the entire painting, you know, and then go back into it again and start sanding and putting thick paint back over it again huh. and, and moving this paint here and there and letting that dry. And he had to have the paint drying constantly so that he could do that almost by the next day is what he often wanted, you know, dehumidifiers and everything else to try to heat, you know, get the painting to dry. So I can go back and, um, he, I think he was trying to create a painting by fighting with it so that it sort of emerged you know, like somebody who's trying to climb to a mountain and they finally reach the top. They don't know how they got there, maybe necessarily, but mm-hmm. they fought at it hard enough that they finally found something. Like you're digging through the dirt looking for a gem. Right? Finally found the gem. And yeah. for him, I think that's how he comes about trying to find a masterpiece. Um, I sort of changed my thinking from that. That wasn't really healthy for me because I would overhaul a painting like halfway through and, uh, I was like, well, this doesn't feel authentic either. Like, I don't like the idea that like people think I got here by planning it when really this is an accident 
because I plan to go somewhere else. But I mean, in a sense, that's always how painting is. <laughs> I was like, well, let's just let it be that then. Let's just attack a painting, let it unfold how it unfolds. Maybe my ideas are constantly going different places. But um, so I said, let it be more about the in the moment of those ideas and how they relate, because it's always relating to itself, right? Like I'm, there's this color here, there's that color here. And maybe that tells me that I need to put this new color now on top of it. So yeah, I noticed there was a definite, looking on your work, there's a definite break in, in style. Uh, it seems like there's a sort of, I guess from like, I don't know, 2013 seems to be, you, you had like, an, I guess, a Nerdrum style, very brown and everything was tightly rendered and, you know, yeah. high resolution. And now there's more of a, more just of a playful, clean lines, but also it's harder to classify, but it's definitely more colorful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In Nerdrums toward the end, I was, my process then was um, I would really work from sketches and I would listen to music, a lot of like classical ambient, classical music, and I would sort of get these images start to collect in my head. And there were these really uh, sort of overcast day-like images, which I still really appreciate. And I would start to just, create them and manifest them. And I start to try to create them in the drawings. Now, something I see now that I didn't really realize at the time was the drawings were probably one of the best parts at that time. That was when I was really connected to this thing and it was developing on the sketch, you know, in my sketchbook. Um, so for instance, I had the one, the self-portrait is possessed, uh, which is probably one of my more successful when I was working with Nerdrum. And uh, that one started from a sketch like that. The palette at the time was red, yellow, black, and white only. And that's why a lot of them end up dark. You don't have to keep it that restricted. You can actually get that stuff more colorful. But for me, I was focused on temperature shift more than color. Because I, I came from a, a drawing background pretty heavily, and especially a charcoal drawing background. So when I began to work with a lot of those pictures, um, I really didn't care too much about really pumping up yellows, reds, and making optical blue from that. It was really more about, can I get these edges to, to when a light turns into a darker tone, I want that to get um, cooled and warm. It was sort of this fluctuation of cool, warm, cool, warm. Uh -huh. um, that I was really focused on, and the edge was really important as well. Um, and I think that was probably the strength to certain pictures like the self portraits possessed picture, but it was, uh, it was very thought out, very process based, very methodical. Um, um, and then the break from all that, that you've seen recently, that sort of came about when I was, um, I'd always had a problem in my work because it was very process based and I was always planning many steps ahead and I was never really painting. And I think that that was left over from my classical background and drawing mm -hmm. with like scaffolding blocking in everything else yeah. so um i would keep planning for a picture to get to a certain place and then i was like when am i going to actually paint this thing um because that was the idea i thought 
And I would keep looking at people who were painting and making paintings. And they had this like fresh sort of energy about them. And I was like, why doesn't my work ever feel that way for me? Like I, mm-hmm. people like, oh, well, you're never going to fully like your work. I'm like, well, I don't just not like my work. I hate my work half the time. Yeah. It, it bums me out looking at it, you know? <laughs> what, are, what, are they, what are they doing here? What, why is this working? And I didn't really understand it. Um, so it was about the time, and this is to me probably the most interesting part of this transition for me when my work changed quite a bit uh there had been a commission that i when i was living in a barn at the time an old landlord um he was younger he was like i'll pay you to paint me a double-sided because he wanted to do this like double-sided fireplace picture of uh kermit and miss piggy oh and, <laughs> i think i know the okay yeah and he was like uh if you can paint the fronts or one of the sides, like they're in a kitschy, beautiful landscape and um, like they're basically just having a loving time or whatever. And then on the back side, I want you to paint like their dark love, love life <laughs> and, and however you think that might be. And at the time I was like, my God, I hate this. Like, is he torturing me? Like I'm a serious artist. Like, can you, can you like commission me to like paint some flowers or some shit or, you know, paint yourself or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he wanted this. And so, you know, hilariously, I tried to work on it and I hated it every time I did. I was miserable. And, uh, I put it off for four years. Who is this guy? He was serious. If you waited that long, <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot who of requests, uh, who requests a Kermit in this. <laughs> I mean, I, that's the thing. I don't know. This is a lot of commissions, you know, you get a lot of people like that who are like, can you paint me like, you know, the cliche stuff like grabbing a bull by the horns and can you paint me on a bearskin rug so I can put in my fireplace? Uh If you're really serious about this, sure, but you're going to have to pay for it, you know, and like, yeah, I, I, uh, I put that off for four years. So about the time, this is probably last year, I was, I was at the point where I was kind of done with, I felt pretty much done with painting. My thesis show was titled, uh, analysis paralysis so i was having a lot of struggles and my whole thesis was kind of about the life of a painter and like are you gonna am I, are my kids gonna have health problems from all the toxins and you know um am i ever going to be able to pay off these loans you know all these things all these worries yeah, all these anxieties uh-huh. and i'm not even having fun painting <laughs> time so like what am i doing and i got to the point where i was like you know i'm just gonna i'm not so excited about painting anymore I got to working in the service industry. I got into bartending and other things. I was like, I feel like I'm kind of happy doing this. But one night uh, I was, I was just kind of sitting there and I was like, you know, I think I just like to go have some fun and just knock out this Kermit and piggy painting and, and do the backside and, you know, do the BDSM part of their love uh-huh. life. Uh-huh. And just, just really have, gag. yeah. <laughs> and just, just really have fun with it. Right. And so I, uh, I did, I just had fun with it. I, I used lots of paint and lots of thinner and, kind of broke some of my own rules and things I was taught and I noticed basically that I enjoyed that process of painting more than the other processes I had before. Uh, you needed something less stifling to it less uh less serious land out yeah 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 doing like uh grisailles and color studies and sketches and yeah mm-hmm. yeah or feeling like there's this feeling like I had to um I had to satisfy um the easily digestive uh qualities of um 
technique, I guess. But, mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to always felt like I needed to show people that I had skill. You know? Yeah, that's a that's a I can relate to that a lot. Um, do you do you ever do you feel like that you made a sacrifice? Uh, did you decide I could keep on growing in skill or I could do my own thing? Or was it just like, I'm skilled now. Now let me fuck around with it. D- d- does that make sense? Yeah. Um, did you have to sacrifice at some point or did, how'd it work? I think it did feel like a bit of a sacrifice, but it also felt like I was unlocking skills that I couldn't unlock before. Right. Yeah. So it, it's hard to really describe, but um, I felt like the skills I did have weren't like, I went through a really s- strange and serious Rembrandt phase where I was like studying his optics and temperature relationships and, wanted to try to do most of the things he was doing from the ground up, work in natural light, set up the same. And I feel like I was doing that all right, but then I hadn't really, at a certain point, it's like you're doing all this stuff for people because you want to show people that you can do it mm. and that you have these skills. Right. And I felt like, I don't know, that other people, like it was, it was about more than that. But when I kind of like tossed that out a little bit, I guess, and just decided to have fun with it, I noticed that, I was able to access more parts of working and more parts of my mind. And um, in fact, I think, I think I could draw better sometimes in that way, um, more intuitive, more fluid. And I think other people respond more warmly. I don't get the comments anymore that like my work is so good as much as I get people saying like, I really like your work. And I think that that's kind of an energy sort of transference where people are feeling my enthusiasm through the work or my happiness. Yes. And, uh, and I feel it too. So I. Uh, just kind of uh, having fun. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, are those so the, two different eras? Yeah. They, they kind of are. Yeah. So like the, the tomorrow painting was still sort of in that phase, but it was, it was an in-between painting in a way so that was part of my thesis show and that was a painting that I made uh within the two weeks coming up to my thesis show where I had a big canvas of something I was working on and then I said I want to make a large painting for my thesis um and I want to just go all out I want to not be afraid of spending money I want to use my my loans to buy good paint to really get a huge palette to load it up with color to really Cause, and the reason why I was loading up the color is not to have color. I wanted to have colorful grays. And I knew to do that, I had to mix uh, complementary colors together. So I had to mix a lot of purple and a lot of yellow. And essentially, I was sort of killing these colors. Um, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, for a lot of people that they would use these expensive colors in that way. But that's what I was interested in. I wanted to create, I still wanted to create these overcast scenes of occult-like imagery. Yeah. And, that's what the tomorrow painting was was kind of in that i finally sort of worked on that one more intuitively and actually worked from the figures i had models and i tried working a little bit from life but i found that i could do them to my liking pretty well from photographs i was getting a lot of the information i wanted and the color was filling in a lot of stuff that i didn't have before whereas when i was working in the old palette that i had at nerd rooms i really needed uh to have that lifelike information at disposal all the time for me to access in order to get, you know, the information on the canvas. But the, 
having more color is sort of created itself a little bit more. Whereas like when you work the limited palette, you can't get away with that. You have to actually mix very accurately in order to transition a color from, you know. Oh, you mean you can kind of bullshit because you're using more colors? In a way, yeah. I mean, uh, orange, oranges that you could find in the skin, if you were going to do that with the optical limited palette, yeah. you would have to create an area that was sort of a, a paler or a certain color. And then you have to like glaze on top of that in a sense to make that accurately. But, you know, somebody like Nerdrum, he's using that palette, but he's, uh, he's working so much from his imagination yeah. that he's creating his own you know stuff and he's he's glazing whenever he wants over things that he wants and then he'll go back into it and he's using so much paint that you know it's hard for most people to be able to afford to do that um yeah i i think i had started with the central figure i wanted to make them sort of life size which they pretty much are on canvas i think i worked i worked with both models at different points but i was constantly just kind of comparing and and really, uh, this is, again, when it became more intuitive for me. So I know if you come from like a teaching background, the idea is you're going to want to try to use measurements. And so, for instance, like comparative measuring, I think that that's often a bad measuring tool for a lot of people to use because you know, you're trying to use your pencil to see how many heads or what lines up with something else. Right. But you, you forget that if you move at all in the wrong way or your thumb changes a little bit or your perspective changes, the sizes of that, the size changes. So if you have a sensitive eye, I think you got to like learn to trust yourself, trust your feel. And so with this image, I was just trying to trust what felt right for the, uh, the figures. That's and shocking to me. I've never heard comparative measurement as a bad thing, but I've been <laughs> a comparative yeah. measurement school, yeah. like everywhere. But hmm, say more about that. So what you've done so, is, well, keep going. Well, uh, so I do like, I think relational measuring is really helpful. Um, you know, where you're basically just, I mean, you know, Nerdrum uses that a lot too. Um, but I think it goes beyond just getting things accurate. And as a relational measuring, it, it also creates harmonies between things. Because you're, you're seeing how one thing affects the relationship with something else and where it connects to something else. And so you're drawing invisible lines and connections through things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that helps you find like negative space and shapes between things often too. And I think uh, I will often stick with that one maybe more. I will use relational measuring very, or I mean comparative measuring very rarely when I'm uh, up against an issue which doesn't seem to be able to be solved by anything else but that. And uh, I'll try to use that to compare. But then when I do, I'm very strict about it because I, I know that, you know, I've had many students in my class that are like, it doesn't feel right, but when I measure it with my pencil, it comes out to be this. It says it's correct. Right. And I remember being in the same position as a student where, you know, I tell my teacher, I'd be like, this doesn't feel right, but my pencil and my measurement says it. Right. Is, you know? Um, and can you trust the pencil or your measurement, really? Well, again, it depends on, like, you can try to lock your elbow and then rest your chin upon it, but... uh I feel like artists, if you are sensitive and you've worked long enough with the figure, you have to learn to trust yourself that you can split those hairs. Yeah. And you can, uh, you can make it and you, you know, instinctively because you've done it enough that right. this just isn't right or whatever. Yeah. At this point, 
are you do you feel that you i've always felt i i love comparative measurement i i love um what you get out of it but to me personally uh it doesn't feel like the way that i want to draw as a as a finalized way and what i want to do is more of like just when i'm doodling in my sketchbook not i'm just kind of pulling stuff out from my i'm just looking at stuff and i don't even know if there's a term for this i don't know if this is taught academically but it's like when you're just i think what you're what you're talking about is just like kind of drawing what you're seeing and trusting your eye and your hands to work together um mm -hmm. is that do you have a term for that yeah it's i, I think i would call it more intuitive drawing yeah that's that's yeah. kind of how i referred to it a lot and i've wanted to uh you know, I've worked, I've been working for a while where I've wanted to like write a book um, kind of on ways of working like this where, because uh, after being a person who stuck to lessons and exercises so strongly for so long, I, I felt after a while they're really just holding me back. I think that they're sort of like training wheels and eventually you have to just let them, just let them go. Um, I just felt like they were getting in the way more than mm. anything. And uh but yeah, I guess I would just call it intuitive. Um, I was doing too much. Uh, if, you, if you were to like visualize this, this is the way I look at it. Um, this is the, often the way is an issue with how I think too, that, that I think is often a problem where you can project your ideas in between you and the canvas about what you think something should be. And you sort of think that it's like you're stopping a game a sports game, a video game, you're stopping it to think about what you're about to do. And then you go back to the game and you're, and then you're supposed to play it. Right. 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 And I think that if anything, that screws you up. If you would just let it keep going and intuitively act while you're in the moment, I think that you would come to conclusions and answers much easier because when I would do a lot of blocking in or compare, compare to measuring more than anything, I would get things that would be off. And then once things start to be off, and you start to create an image, your mind starts to get used to the image. Mm -hmm. And when it gets used to the image, it gets even harder to see where things are off or, you know, where, where right. they are. Right. And you end up having to like scaffold and rework and erase and rework and draw more lines and work and work and work something into something. And I feel like at that point, if you're not careful, it can die. It can become very stale. Mm -hmm. And uh, also you may not be having fun because you're just analyzing all the time rather than like enjoying the, the brush strokes or the paint application. Right. Yeah. So placing an emphasis on actual sensual enjoyment is, yes. uh, that's important for you. And I feel like I see that a lot. And even in a lot of what, you, what we would call old masters, I think a lot of them are doing yeah. that. Yeah. Um, their, their paint would suggest that. It doesn't suggest highly analyzed placement as much as it does just, complete reactionary uh, intuitive process right but but they probably had the basis of instruction and, and yes that. yes um who who in particular people might be interested in uh looking at for this kind of thing i mean i, I think you can look at some of rembrandt's uh ink drawings would mm, be a good yes. example yes, of this. yes um and if you look at uh delacroix a lot of his stuff yeah is, it's kind of like that. I mean, he talks about being able to draw a figure. Um, if a figure was jumping off out of a window, to be able to draw it before it hit the ground. Sort of thing, you know, <laughs> I like, like 
and like nobody in a lot of you know academic schools are being taught that you know like because they're being taught to block it in first and then do, you're not going to get there mm-hmm. um i think that's a, a lineage or a type of drawing that's often called a croquis um it mm-hmm. may be and then in other ways people it's not the same as a gesture but it's almost like a line drawing that you really knock out in full fluidity but i think that those guys were enjoying line work just as anything else i think that uh you know, they, the, those were abstract qualities to the less abstract final images that they got to, but they enjoyed those qualities as well. I don't know if those are always taught at a lot of schools. I think there's a bit, I think there's a big disconnect now between the two. If you look at like contemporary painting versus, uh, if you want to call more academic ways of working, I think the academic ways of working don't, don't really talk much about the appreciation of just um what i guess you guys you said like sensual experience mm-hmm. the the intuitive process the application of the paint on the surface and where i related that to was a lot to graphology have you ever looked much or heard much about that never heard of graphology okay. no so you know i had a guy comment one time on my post that i put on he's like no one takes that seriously anymore graphology and like i can understand like psych you know from a psychological standpoint or psychologist standpoint you're not going to want to argue for saying that a person is this or that based off their writing so graphology is a study of people's writing and what it says oh interesting but i think about all the time then i see it as completely connected to drawing because I would go around in my classrooms and I would, I would be able to like profile my students based on the way they were drawing. I'd, you, you have trouble making decisions. You're like, how did you know? And I'm like, well, it's really, it's all on the surface. Like, you know, you've changed this figure's placement five different times. Or um, if they drew really hard with their pencil lines, right? And then erased it five times. Well, then that would suggest that they make really harsh, rash decisions that they really feel strongly convicted about. And then they, second guess themselves mm-hmm. and it's just an extension all their decisions are being made on the surface and so for me i think that that relates a lot to um yeah to to painting uh in the same way i think that you're making these these decisions all the time and i think that if you try to create a really strict academic process you end up uh you, you cut that stuff off i think too much sometimes it, it seems like Degas is someone who works, yeah. maybe, I don't know about his academic training, actually, but he's someone who, it seems, I don't know his techniques, but it looks like he's kind of just going off of intuition and just kind of, you know, like a subway sketch or something like that. Oh, yeah, um, no, I, I definitely think so. Uh, well, have you had teachers that have, that have, uh, have you ever had a method? There's one book that I've come across. It's called High Focus Drawing by James McMullen. He taught at SVA. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. That book is it's teaching. I think I, I didn't really know what I knew at the time when I was reading it, but I think he was kind of going against uh, more of a like just like an eight nineteenth century academicism uh, yeah. block-in method, and really saying, yeah, the sort of contour-based um, drawing, you know. I guess like the way that Klimt draws or Egon Schiele, that kind of mm-hmm. linear based, uh, yeah, that intuitive yeah. drawing thing. He's saying that's the way to draw. I mean, I don't know, you know, there's advantages to both, but yeah. did you have a life drawing class or a teacher that taught this or something that you did really on your own? 
No, not really. Uh, I think I had a teacher that, that saw some elements that I couldn't see at the time that I see now in his work. But for the most part, um, every drawing teacher I had was teaching these kind of methods. Because I think it was easy that to teach and to get people to figure out how to draw things, if that makes sense. Um, this is a really complicated topic to kind of get into, but um, I like to think about children and how they draw. So, you know, children, this is what Picasso's, you know talked about, but, uh, you know, children, they draw completely intuitive. They, they draw on their complete reaction. This area needs to be red. I'm going to make it red. Yeah. They're not sitting there like watching themselves and uh, thinking like, ooh, look at these marks I'm making. Look at this color. Am I doing this good? Should I go back? And they're not thinking about stuff like that. And so to some degree, what they're doing um, has the right energy that I think a painting, in my opinion, often needs, but they don't have the sophistication yet. Yeah. They, haven't, they don't have the sensitivity to, um, to use certain things, to put certain things together, to make arrangements, right? Um, and I also think that the issue with a lot of uh, academic uh, type of mindsets is that if you're not careful, you squash all the intuition as well. Mm -hmm. So you end up going about things in such a methodical process that uh, you, you don't really have, if you think of it like a dance, um, you have to learn how to dance to make an interesting dance. But when mm -hmm. it's time to dance, you dance. You don't, you don't like stop in the middle of your dance and think, oh, what am I going to do next? Right. And I hope no one's paying attention. And I, I think that for a lot of paintings, I think that that shows up on the canvas. And I think it does for a lot of like um, people who work more academic sometimes. It's just uh, the flow of the picture is stopped. And they're trying to search for this like secret the old masters have. And I think the secret the old masters was the fact they were working intuitively. Hmm. They had these skills, but, and, and they, they knew what they were doing and they, they knew how to like um, create complex arrangement, but they didn't. Uh, I, I mean, if you look at somebody like um, Abbott there, that's it. I'm sure some people think of him as a little bit kitschy at times, but the way that a lot of his paintings start are completely kind of abstract and loose. Yeah. And they're not for the sake of abstraction necessarily, but he had a weird working method. He would work, um, what do you call a three day pounce? So he worked on a painting for three days, three times. And if he didn't get it, he would have a student, um, make a copy of his painting. And then he would pounce on the student's painting for three days. And if he didn't get that, the student, another student would make a copy and he would work on top of theirs. Oh my God. So you never really work on any image more than like three times or three days. Uh -huh. Um, I think that that's really interesting. I mean, Sargent had similar working methods where he would, uh, if he didn't get a face right, he would just start all over because these are components that are moving and interacting and playing together. And uh, you can't just like have a whole face painted and decide to move an eye down a little bit, you know? And as most painters know, the hardest thing to do is to work back into a place that is already dried. You, know? you not only have to match an area, you have to transition it too. I think a lot of these guys were uh, more connected to this stuff than, than we're often taught. You know, I used to work a lot, do a lot of life drawings. And mm -hmm. you've seen a couple of those, but uh, yeah. I, that was one of my favorite things to do is to go and work from life and do portraits and figures. And I always had a lot of trouble with line because I always saw something in Degas' work or like Klimt's work where they had a, they had 
you know, great sophistication, but uh, they had a life to it. And they had all these, they would have extra lines and things. And I'm like, what is the secret? Why does this work? Or even like Balthus, if you ever looked at his line drawings, you know, mm-hmm. they're unconventional, but I'm like, is it, is it a wonky eye? Is it being off a little bit? Is it not quite being accurate? What is right. it here that, that's working? Um, is it the pressure of the lines? So I got really caught up in all that. And um, I thought at times that I needed to add like extra lines to things or, you know, maybe that was part of it. I was just really overthinking the entire, hmm. entire process because I think the issue with a lot of like, I don't mean to like overly seem like I'm criticizing these academic schools is that they're so caught up in like maybe repeating what things were in the past with bigger drawings mm-hmm. to think maybe what makes those work? Why do they work? Maybe it's in the fact that they worked from a model. Maybe it's in the fact that they worked with pencil or charcoal or these designs. But I think a lot of it has to do with the energy. And I think you, you can get that with abstract or representational work, but you really have to be um, more kind of involved in the process rather than thinking about the end result. Right, right. There needs to be a sort of a, some sort of alive spirit really to yes something in there that's what i would say yeah otherwise it can be affected if you're not careful Mm -hmm. just like with singing or dancing or anything else you can have a person where they've learned how to make the right moves that other people have made um but as far as having an authenticity to or sincerity i guess and sincerity was what i was always after at least my work Mm -hmm. I don't want to make, and I don't think I like my own work because I was, um, I could see every decision, everything that I had drawn was a decision, an analytical decision that I had made that I thought would make a good drawing or a good picture. But I wasn't really just like playing and having fun and enjoying it as I was going. Yeah. Do you work, when you do a portrait or a figure, do you, do you cover like, do you work piece by piece, you know, do the forehead part by part. Do you cover the entire face with like one or two tones and then, then add the, uh, the variations and layer in the variations on top? Um, yeah, no, I don't work from piece to piece. Although I often think that might be a really good way of working. I felt like I always wanted my masses to correlate and have a nice harmony before I got into doing the, the smaller structures. Um, so yeah, I'd basically work with like, if I started a face, I would start with the larger areas that I saw, create sort of guesstimates of those colors or match, create what, or maybe I'm creating my own color, but I want it to read, I want it to harmonize. And then from there, I'll start usually with like the sort of central access point that I would call mm-hmm. like the eyebrows to the nose area. Mm-hmm. And that's my favorite place to go. And so I'll go there and I'll start massing those areas in and, and, you know, keeping the shadows. And as I progress, I'll go deeper and deeper into the smaller information. Um, But I'll just kind of work into those masses. Yeah. From there. And when you work on a, on a mass, are you thinking of, uh, are you thinking in terms of, I've noticed there's sort of a distinction there's, between uh, the optical appearance of something versus the actual form logic of the thing. Like, are, do you have a sort of like Munsell type gradation in your palette as you're turning the form away mm. as something's moving away from the light? Or do you have a, or is it more of like a, this color's here, this color's here, 
not color matching, but something more like that? Well, it, it really depends on the process of how I'm painting. Like if I'm mm. working from uh, if I'm working from the mirror, then I'm I'm trying to use the information that I'm seeing. I'm trying to get the the, the value structure correct or mm -hmm. like matching in what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. um, the color I can push or pull. I feel like color is like pumping energy in and out of a certain you know area. And if you get too much green, you know it's too much green because it doesn't fit the picture, right? Yeah. Um, so that's sort of how I would use the color. But I, I do think a lot about like how things turn. Like if things are turning into the dark, well, then I think that they're going to get warmer. But I don't obsess over that edge quality as much anymore or those like temperature transitions. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe maybe more now it's kind of autopilot and just like this feels right. This feels like this should be here. Or if I don't get enough color into an area, then I it's too neutralized, it's too much black and white. I can just, I just feel it and I sense it, look at it, say that this isn't right. This needs more color, more of this. Your process is more intuitive and just kind of, uh, yeah. how do I make this good? And just <laughs> don't really <laughs> well, worry about do, the details. Yeah, I mean, how do I make this yeah. work? I, I mean, I think there is something to be said for people that plan out, um, you know, the areas of color that they, you know, people that pre-mix on a palette. Mm -hmm. that's something I've not done very often. I feel like it, it can be very helpful to do because it saves you time having to go mix up something or mix up more of another color right. for a certain area. So I, you know, but I think if you look at a lot of like old master palettes, um, you don't always find that. You just find that they mixed it as they went, but you have to have the colors there and ready. That I would say is probably the most important thing. Okay. Rather than pre-mixes is uh, being able to, reach for what you need at that moment when it hits you and i think that's i forget which artist said that at one point so what do you mean by that having them mix when they're ready are you talking about having them in the tube or like do you mix out a pool of orange and a pool of no blue? i mean like having them out from the tube ready to go so like if you're using a painting and you feel like it needs phthalo blue but you don't have any phthalo out then you got to stop what you're doing you mm. set your palette or whatever brushes down. You got to go find that tube, put it on there, then uh -huh. get back. And by the time you're back to your painting, you know, you may or may not remember, you know, what you were doing or that exact moment or what you needed. Um, but I think that that, yes, I think that's important. I think it's important to have what you need ready to go. So you don't stop your process. Does that mean that when you start a painting, when you, you know, sit down to paint, you'll squeeze out, all the colors you're, you're, you may or may not use and yeah. whether or not you'll ever use them, it doesn't matter. Just squeeze them all out because you never know. Yeah, no, I think it's important to do that. Um, I think it's important to have everything ready to go because I think at a certain point you enter into that zone that you do with sports or anything else. And yes. You want to you stay there. You want to stay there as long as you can. Um, the worst thing for me, I feel like, is when I take a break, then I got to come back to the picture. Yeah, and it's gone. Well, yeah, you just don't know where to, to re-begin again. I would say, if anything, I've learned now how to do that a little bit more by stopping focusing my mind and just whatever hits me first is what I run with. Instead of like thinking about it, like by trying to project in my head what I should do, I think what speaks to me immediately. So if the mm -hmm. painting says like, if the painting says I want a red background, then I'll go ahead and mix red and I'll put red there. But I won't, like I used to do, and say, what would make this picture good? 
in the catalog or the canon in my head of all the pictures I've ever seen or what people seem to like or what I think would probably work best. Or, or I'm referencing an old master who's got a certain background and a picture yeah. that looks similar to this. Yeah. I'm going to go with that. You know, like, no, I just try, you know, now I'm just like, this, this is what this thing is telling me to do. As a method, that's very, it's you very would, intuitive, yeah. but I think that that's really helpful for, for me at least. I think that that's accessing a certain type of uh, information storehouse that I think you are thinking about it. You just, people think often that if they don't put it in this like in-between bubble between them acting and then like observe what they're thinking about before they go and do it and they don't think that they thought about it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like sports. I think of it like sports a lot. I like to use that analogy. I mean, sports players aren't going, okay, I'm going to have to run over here and I got to jump up and do this thing. They're just doing it and it it, comes to them and they know what they got to do. Their bodies respond quickly. Right. And I think that painters are the same way. We can respond just as quick, but we have to stop like stopping ourselves all the time and saying like, oh yeah, what do I have to, I got to analyze this. I got to think about this. But when you're taught that way, when that's how you've learned to do it, then it's easy to, to stick to that. Because there isn't much of a distinction between practice and game time with painting. And oh, yeah. I wonder I wonder if there should be. I'm not sure. Um, that actually leads me to a to um uh another thing. First I wanna I'm wondering you working do you think that your ability to kind of work intuitively as you want to and just kind of going by what feels right do you think that you were able to do that and make satisfactory paintings because of some uh, rigid academic training you've had before or do you think that it's not exactly necessary i think it it uh i think it is somewhat necessary yeah. to have the academic training to the well and and i think of it in the way that it, it um it's related to sensitivity more than anything so the act of like learning to train academically, what it teaches you, the idea is you're training yourself to be extra sensitive to what you're looking at and to see particular things. And you're also, you're, you're criticizing in a way yourself all the time. So if you're trying to like match ahead, well, you're, you're constantly reevaluating re- that what you thought it was, wasn't right. That there's an objective way outside of yourself to find in this that, uh, that's, outside yourself that relates to everybody else and that they know it to be true. And so you're constantly just reinforcing that. And and you're like, Oh man, I thought that that was that. I thought that that ear was that big or that it was over here, but it wasn't. And uh, I think that that can be really helpful, but it can also hurt you after a while. And I think that eventually the artist goes about their own whims and they're about their own way of looking at the world and their own language. I think that's the important part eventually, you know, Mm -hmm. Just like uh, any any uh, anybody we think about, whether it's um, you know, you Rembrandt, people are like his his arms and his hands are stubby, whatever. Like, well, maybe he saw it that way. I don't know. Maybe he preferred it that way on the on the image. Maybe right. he didn't like lengthy things. Yeah. But maybe uh, there's other painters that we look at who do have um, lengthier figures. Um, who's a Spanish painter? I'm forgetting right now. El Greco. El Greco, like he's got a little bit of like a loosey, weird, yeah. you yeah. know, uh, elongated approach to, to things. And, uh, I don't know. Right. Do we call any of those accurate? Is that, yeah. <laughs> was that set up in, uh, 
know, blocked in. I doubt it, you know. Uh-huh. Back to the sports analogy. Did you ever uh, – during your training, did you set yourself up a sort of regimen for yourself? Did you, like, I'm going to focus on this every day? Or, like, did you have sort of a practice schedule that you had set for yourself in addition to uh, any training? Were there any – or let me put it this way: Are there any? Was there a particular exercise that you found to be really, really helpful in terms of just shooting up your drawing or painting ability? Not exact. I mean, I've never followed much of a schedule for one, so I yeah. didn't really have that. I thought a lot about a lot of things a lot of the time. That's what I would do, but. Uh, I don't know if that really got me anywhere. I think what got me more than anywhere was uh, seeing other people's approaches to things mm-hmm. was really helpful. Um, playing. Um, I remember in under, or graduate school, I, we had this thing we called um, alter ego, where you just basically painted in a different way than what you usually mm. do. You try mm-hmm. to be somebody. I think in a way you're stepping in another person's shoes or another imagined shoes or whatever, right? Well, I made a painting one time where I just went against everything that I believed as much as I could. So I was like, I'm going to use, when I think it's, it should be this color, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm just going to do the exact opposite, everything I think I should do. And it was so ridiculous. And it was such a dumb painting and super immature. And, you know, I was trying to be funny and usually I don't want funny in my paintings. I don't like humor. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> it was, it was a ridiculous painting, but um, yeah, I, uh, but a lot of people liked it. <laughs> And I learned a lot from doing that, that, you know, if you keep yourself on the same track all the time, you might just dig deeper into that track, but you don't learn to make new connections. And I think, I feel like now I have better access to figurative painting and drawing that I've gone and done those things. That's why I think that it's important to teach it all, to teach even appreciation for abstraction to a degree, because I think at the core, all painting is essentially abstract, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, you have to, learn to make connections between things of all types. And then I think that that kind of comes back and informs even on you, if you're going to use representational work, because I learned how to see different than I had saw for so long. And it's, and, and suddenly all these painters made sense to me paintings, like painters, like Wayne Theobut or something, you know, mm-hmm. um, where I looked at the work and I said, I get it now. Like they're both operating not only on the mass scale the picture but also on the the microcosm of the inner workings of the picture so they are also caught up in the beauty of the micro workings and that is in a sense abstract painting even if it's representing something that looks representational there is a abstraction happening on these other levels within the picture mm-hmm. and i often think that that's the way life is really working or it's connected to a degree we make sense we make the information out of ah, what we're seeing. right but um and I, th- I think that those guys have so i think a really good example of that would be david hockney if you think about uh the way david hockney goes about his work because i remember as a young student i look at david hockney like he he's drawing so bad like his yeah. his proportions aren't meeting up they're not yeah. they're not like coming together in a very solidified way and I was like, how is this guy appreciated? I didn't really understand it. But if you look at um, somebody like David Hockney through the smaller decisions he's making in the paintings, they're really nice, small decisions. 
Mm. They're like little individual paintings within a larger painting. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a lot of his paintings, they're that way. You can see he's making moves, he's making marks that are really nice. And then, yes, you have the massive picture, but it's not all about the massive picture. It's also mm. kind of how it's made. If that makes the sense. details. Yeah, zoom in like a, maybe yeah. like a Where's Waldo picture. <laughs> to a degree, yeah. But I, I, uh, I guess that's what I got interested in. And I started noticing that more and caring about that more than I would have in the past. So uh -huh. now see somebody like Rembrandt doesn't have that really. He, um, Rembrandt, it's almost all mass yeah. picture. Yeah. So he's got connections if you look at it in the minute, but his areas don't really come to, they don't have their own play necessarily. They mm -hmm. are made for the, the top mass image. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. One thing I think about a lot is memory. I've always wanted uh, to be able to, I've always wanted to just be able to draw out of my head. Uh, yeah. And make a satisfying picture out of my head uh for satisfying figures compositions do you think like how do you feel about is memory something that's important to you uh being drawing purely out of your head like a satisfying realistic oh. looking figure i think a satisfying real um yes it definitely is important I think when you're learning from a figure and you're you're learning you're learning a lot of things or like illustrators for instance they learn sort of ways in which they're going to make a figure and make a body and they kind of tend to stick to those or they mm. have certain rules or certain setups that they follow for like the recipe yeah and yeah sort of a recipe um and so yeah i think that that kind of i feel like for myself i've i've taken in a lot of information over the years and i just hope that that comes out through my memory memory when i make work um i think it's one of the most important things though i think that that's what makes that is, in fact, I think something that um, one of those guys I was mentioning earlier, uh, R.H. Ives Gamel, one of those classical painters, even mentioned that he thought that the secret to the old masters is really all in their memory, mm. that they were working a lot from that. I mean, I think somebody like uh, even Leonardo da Vinci was working out of his memory. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily idolized. It wasn't that they said these eyes drawn this way are better or I think are the best type of way of drawing eyes. It was that maybe that's how they learned to draw eyes. That's what was in their memory. But I think mm -hmm. the memory is where you start to filter out what's important to you yeah. as an artist. And um, as far as making complex scenes and everything, I mean, yeah, I think you have to just know a lot about structure to make mm -hmm. that work. You'd have to know a lot about anatomy. It, and then depending upon how much you want to include too, I mean, you could say uh, Klimt's paintings are mostly out of his memory, or um, you could say that um, Monk's paintings are mostly out of his memory. Yeah. You know, um, but they're, they're including elements of uh, understanding. If you look at somebody like Sheila, for instance, we were mentioning earlier, mm -hmm. I think a lot of those are probably done out of his memory, but they're, uh, they're showing uh, a great sensitivity to form, not so much accurately, but that he memorized the way these things move, these minute information. They may not right. get the same um, proportions to each other, but he knows that a bone did this. Yeah. And that the elbow moves like this. Mm -hmm. And it turns in here and this bone is like that or whatever. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Okay. And there's some figure joins that you do. I I've noticed there seems to be 
something coming out of the Midwest region. I'm thinking of like Indiana, Ohio, something yeah. like that. I've I've never been, but I've noticed that there's artists around that that there's a certain a certain pattern uh or a certain like uh just like a scene like maybe there's like an indie rock scene in in a certain city there's like a similar thing going on i've noticed uh these life drawings that you do here's one that i've seen this one reminds me a lot of uh you know emil robinson yeah yeah, yeah. uh and there's someone else john do you know what i'm talking about John Mike Bale, Mike Bale. Do you know him? Mike Bale. Yeah, I think he's also connected with maybe Emil too in that same. They're in, uh, yeah, Cincinnati, I believe. Um, yeah, I I know. I've been to that um, life drawing, um, and I, I definitely talked with Emil and watched him work, and he definitely uses uh, pastels, like dry pastels. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got into using those for a little while and drawing with dry pastels, especially from the figure. I was and wondering if to those some were, extent that's yeah. just, yeah, it's just kind of the look that it can take on sometimes. Um, when you draw pastels, yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're trying to use them like almost like they're paints in a way. Right. Right. And you have to use the white to like mix everything together in a sense because you mm, can't yeah. just mix like the direct color. So the white acts as like a couch or something for the colors to mix into to a degree. Mm-hmm. but it's a fun way of working uh, yeah but yeah they're working yeah. they're working in ohio is that a is it what's the, is there like a manifest okay is that a yeah. school uh well they have a residency there they allow okay. like two artists per year to study there for a year um but i don't know all the details of it but they it is kind of like they do have a live drawing class like every wednesday or tuesday night Okay. Um, and it's usually really great. I mean, I've been to a lot of them. I've not been to a lot in like New York City and stuff. Mm-hmm. But as far as many that I've been to, like they have a really good setup, really good um, easels and uh, nice lighting and the you know models that show up and do their poses. <laughs> it's really manifest great. has it down. I think so. Yeah. Okay. It's a really great place to be. But um, I've I've noticed a similarity in your work and in Again, Emil's, uh, some of his work, his less abstract work. And there's another artist, uh, Jonathan Lux. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 I, like his work. I like it, yeah. I was, yeah. I'm wondering, do, are you guys in dialogue with each other? There's a, do you know what I mean when there's a similarity? There's sort of a, almost like a, it looks like there's like a pure drawing, almost, I don't want to say cartoony. Do you know what I mean? There is a yeah. sort of element yeah. to it. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, I think I've always admired like purity a lot. Yes. Yeah, so. I mean, when I first started painting, I was like mulling my own pigments and I thought I needed to use copper tacks. And I know that <laughs> seems like it's unrelated, but it, it goes back to the idea of just like purity as uh-huh. possible. I don't like to create false illusions. I don't like, I want to be sincere. I want to give people exactly what's there. When I'm drawing these days, and I think I would say the same thing with probably Jonathan's work is that the lines are there the moves are there like mm-hmm. he just wants to maybe leave it and i if we're having a dialogue we're not really talked much but maybe visually there's a dialogue there going mm. on um which i find in other painters i ran across a painter the other day who is doing stuff with edge work that i think i've been kind of playing with a little bit myself 
and I just immediately was like, yes, like I like what you're doing and uh-huh. like my work. And um, it was, it's really kind of incredible how like these are the, I think it's a visual language, you know, and, and um, yeah. I think it's important. I like to think about it like writing, um, if you're writing a book or whatever, like you can make a really wordy uh, written novel that you make sure to specify everything um, or you can leave it more poetic or you can just let it be about the words. And I think painting is operating very similar in a lot of ways. Now, here, the thing is, I don't think that my paintings, I don't think a lot of people like maybe my new work as much because they might feel like I'm just making things that are easy or whatever, but I'm mm-hmm. not really, I don't know. Like I'm just making things more that I like. Yeah. That I, that I like looking at. And yeah, it, it makes me feel better to make a mark that I had fun that I was confident in that I really enjoyed than to look at something that like I labored over and put a lot of time into that didn't have that, um, that like shimmering quality of, I'm curious when you say edge work, um, is there, is there a way to describe that without (laughs) via audio? Uh, so I feel like edge work, what's interesting is like edges create space in a way. Yeah. Yes. Um, implied space or actual space. So, uh, and throughout a picture because of the medium, because of like, well, let's say medium, but like, maybe the medium is actually a medium. Maybe it's like a thinner or maybe it's a, a textural component or maybe you're like dry brushing it a little bit. So it's softer, maybe kind of like all of those things are creating like uh, feelings of atmosphere that you would find in, in reality, whether it's a, you know, a mountain being hid by a sort of atmospheric mist or, you know, fog or whatever, but you're, you're creating this sharpness, this softness, this back mm. and forth. And yeah. I feel like in edge work, you kind of start to get that a little bit. The who are some artists I can look at for uh, that we can look at for examples of edge work? There, there is a um, okay. So Anna K O A K, so Koak or whatever, maybe. Um, I don't know if you follow her or not. They have a really great way of doing this edge work, you know, and creating even shadow space. The nose and the mouth are very geometric, but then there's like sort of outlining of the eyes. It's done really softly. So you have this like hard edge versus these soft edges. It's kind of Mm. just pushing these things to the extremes. I'm going to start thinking about edge work then um, because that's a term I've never really even uh, heard before. Well, I I think it's interesting because I don't really think it's something that's been used very often because it's a kind of a disharmonious way of painting. That makes sense. Because uh, in the past, a lot of artists that were working, like say you had Impressionism, well, everything was kind of just brush stroke. So you had edges, but it was really just kind of a mix of, and then you get into textures. It was where two brush strokes met. Yeah, yeah. but like, and then you had the texture of the canvas, which created the edges of the brush strokes sometimes by the way the yeah. paint would like right. go on Make top. a ridge. Uh-huh. And then of course, in the old medieval paintings, they're like Van Eyck, you have very particular oiled out very soft lines that almost you don't you know very strict um then you have you know your post-impressionist but you don't really have what you have today which is where you can often take very simplified geometric taped edges i mean i don't even know if tape existed back you know yeah past so for me if anything if it's anything new going on in painting i feel like edge work is something to be noted about it's very interesting to me 
because we have more materials now we have more access to this stuff i think that's what makes painting often very uh, interesting as these surprises you know these mm-hmm. little, little notes of things that just like music you know you want to have a nice melody something that works but it's nice to have qualities that you can't quite pick up on or don't maybe make sense or a little bit of dissonance here and there. right right um, yeah. so when it's one thing has a sharp edge of course on top of something else it has softer edges it looks definitely like it's in front of it right mm-hmm. but then maybe it's actually supposed to be in the background by ways of other information so you're playing with the depth of the picture the space like you had a you could have a building behind a softly painted portrait of a face but maybe the building has harder edges than the face does but the mm-hmm. face obviously appears like it should be in front that they they play off of each other that they one raises one question and one answers it somewhere else. And then another thing contradicts what you think is going on there. And uh, I think there are a lot of, you know, great examples of that used. And I think that's what makes painting often very uh, interesting is these surprises, you know, these mm-hmm. little, little notes of things that just like music, you know, you want to have a nice melody, something that works, but it's nice to have qualities that you can't quite pick up on or don't maybe make sense or, a little bit of dissonance here and there. Right, right. Um, and I guess that can be dangerous because then you're getting into an area of uh, maybe reactionary type of painting. You know, a lot of people talk badly about that. I don't want to be a complete reactionist either. I want to have mm-hmm. intentions, you know. But um, yeah, essentially, I got to the point where I was tired of making messes and making it look like I was struggling with it. I didn't want to s- struggle in that way. I wanted to just... Um, work on grace and I feel like that's a school that like Leonardo comes from a little bit more where his lines whether or not they're right or he meant for them to be there or whatever he's always working gracefully mm-hmm. you know it's like it always matters he's never yeah. just like I'm just throwing this down just to get this area covered up so that I can figure out where this shape or form goes you know it's like maybe he's darkening the background but he he has enjoyment in that he gives care to that background you know right yeah and so that's a different way of thinking than that is a very yeah it's a very different approach um that's something i haven't really had much experience with as far as my actual painting but it is something that you know i noticed that i i I much i that's sort of my default when i'm sketching you know i i I don't care if i have to you know black in a you know just like a big spot of black it's fun it's like yeah painting i've noticed that is interesting do you know what i mean there's sometimes i can sketch fine but then when i when it comes to doing an actual painting it's hard for me to transfer the process of sketching into making a painting yeah i well that is something i've heard talked about a lot and i do think it's completely true that if you're not careful what happens is you exhaust all the beautiful magic quality, all the energy into the sketch. And by the time you try to go make the painting, you feel like you're trying to like copy and extract it and yeah, it over. Like, and then you're not really making anymore. The creative process is you're just gone. Copy. Right. Now you're just trying to like, and I think that's why people don't like commissions and all these other things because they're yes. trying to like, they're not able to exercise this creative energy anymore. And I think when you're sketching, right. that's what you get to do is exercise creative energy. So right. there are a lot of artists who've talked about that. Um, oh, what's it? Well, Sagantini, have you ever, he's a symbolist. 
um, very interesting, strange work. A lot of the simplest work, of course, but uh, his whole thing was like, he's never gonna, he doesn't do sketching because he would basically, yeah, exhaust everything that he would wanted to save for a painting, so. Okay, do you think that, is it fair to say that you have sort of make it, made that a priority with your practice is to, you basically find, found, found a way to make painting much more like, you know, keep more like sketching to keep that creative process constant and forefront and one of the most important things during making a painting. Yeah, yeah, maybe almost too much, but yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I've focused on now because I was, I was not happy with a lot of the things that I was making. Um, mm. Yeah. When I started just having fun with it and just creating things that, you know, for my own enjoyment or whatever, it's like things are going a little bit more successful for me, or at least I was happier. I, a lot of what feeds my work is also my, uh, my thoughts on um, life or, you know, maybe more spiritual thoughts or, or Zen yeah. thoughts. And I think painting for me is a lot like, I think a lot about, you know, Zen sometimes where they talk about how, uh, you know, it, I don't know, maybe it's the archer who, you know, can hit his target when um, basically when they stop trying to or something. Yeah. And yeah. they finally just let go and just do it, you know? And I think the difference is the way nature works. Because here's the thing, like, I've read a lot of these old master naturalistic books and everything that are ridiculous sometimes, like uh, artists aren't art or whatever. And what I seem to find again and again is a lot of these people are saying, like, look to nature. And when you're young, you think like, oh, that means like go outside and look at the trees and grass and yeah. human, human figure and learn to draw that as it is. Right. But I think really what they're talking about is the, na the behavior of nature and how oh, it yeah. grows and how it evolves and how it behaves. Because a tree doesn't grow necessarily to become the ideal form that it wants to be. Mm -hmm. It grows toward the energy or the nutrients right and that's what describes what it becomes so or it would, it would you know how it shows up and its growth so i feel like that's you know nature is working in this way of um relationships and seeking and and growing and um that's how i think about process so i don't try to like force the painting to become something but rather through my interest it sort of evolves into um and I think you can still do that in a representational way. I think that, you know, Degas or, um, you know, one of my f favorites would be Courbet. Mm -hmm. I think they were working in that, that sort of way. But that they they had a structure that they were aiming for, but you can still sort of, uh, you know, play within that, I guess. I'm trying to think of contemporary artists who do that. Like, um, like there's a big difference between a lot of people who work hyper realistic and then somebody like um at least in my mind and somebody like uh antonio lopez garcia you know mm -hmm. because he's working very uh very sensitively very i guess what you call hyper real at times yeah but um it's almost abstract too because things are changing right he's, seek he's seeking after that thing but he's not necessarily like trying to make a painting that looks great and that rivals the old masters and yeah. has all these, he's like, this is where this thing is heading. And like that face of that girl who's growing over time and it starts to change because he's, he's just trying to, you know, grab that and paint that thing. 
and uh and the painting evolves with his thoughts and his intentions ah so like he's he's doing more of a tree growth kind of approach yeah, to yes. his painting yeah he I mean he's super accurate but he's not like trying to force his picture his image to come to a conclusion uh -huh. necessarily you know he's he's more yeah. like what's the distance between these two grapes right but maybe on thursday they've moved <laughs> now he's yeah, like what's right. the distance between these two grapes but he's not like going back over and repainting it and trying to like fit it in with the rest of the picture and make like a nice looking picture you know what i mean because i feel like at that point you're if you're not careful you get into like an affected kind of fine art looking way of working um where you're just meeting conditions that you think make a great picture and mm -hmm. um, i don't know that i would call that necessarily painting not meeting conditions, but I like to think of it as uh, you're you're searching for something. So um, yeah, I don't think he's like making a figure where he's trying to make a perfect looking drawing of the figure because uh, I don't know if perfection exists in that way. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think that we want to think that now because we we feel like we've lost our classical taught connection, this academic background that got lost in the, in the 20th century, right? right? Because of, because of modernism or whatever, yeah. you know, people artists killing themselves or whatever, because Picasso was out there and everything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you couldn't draw the figure because of the Nazis and, you know, during the war, uh -huh. you know, and, and so you got away from the figure. Now it's all abstract. And it's like, Oh, we've forgotten how to draw and how to make things look like things. And, uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but I think that we've come back with the, the pendulum has swung back, but it's swung back too far in this sort of direction that makes it seem like, um, I don't know, that we need all these things that maybe aren't necessarily, because if you think about a lot of old master painters, like which of them paint a perfect figure? Yeah. So you're saying that the pendulum of realistic art, like within this, uh, yeah realism revival or classical revival the pendulum has swung a little too far towards literal factual well, perfection yeah or that we think that's the secret or that's what all those but like who is an example of that you know oh like who oh, like represents the uh you know because like it seems very focused on like roman um sculpture and greek sculpture mm. in a lot of ways and so the face it takes on its own uh, identity and its own mm -hmm. character which i think is really brilliant but um i don't know who are, who are we who are we referencing as far as like who we think had the magic and how we're trying to are we creating new things because a lot of uh, classical thought is like it shouldn't be about the new it should be about the original and odd right. has his own ideas too but um i mean odd Nerdrum had to create his own kitsch thing which was it was not about originality um, yeah it was about technique and craft yeah agree but um i don't know like i think about Raphael, and uh i don't really like Raphael. a lot of painters who were representational realistic painters didn't like Raphael either i mean that's degas was making fun of they didn't like Raphael. really they, they sure as hell didn't like bougro like huh. it was uh yeah oh, yeah there's degas and those guys and and um man a like they were constantly laughing at people who were in lines of like looking ready to look at a bougaro because he was sort of like their thomas Kincaid of, of that 19th century yeah yeah um 
but now it's like we've become very inclusive to all of it, though it's all in the same camp or something. I mean, those guys weren't really agreeing with each other necessarily. So. There's a book by a guy named Larry Shiner out of uh, Chicago, and it's called The Invention of Art. And um, the point that it really brings up is that, like, we call all this stuff art that we see in the past, right? Uh-huh but they didn't necessarily have those same terms. And they, if they did, they didn't look at it the same way. So like the Greeks had what they called techna. Right? Yeah. And uh, there's, and a lot of the work in the past is almost like business as much as anything. I mean, these mm-hmm. easy, easy Italians were like, uh, you know, you, you had, they had painters working with them, apprentices. It was like uh, being a blacksmith or anything else. Like these guys were helping start the pictures. They were doing backgrounds. They were doing foregrounds, certain people would do. And then the master would often come by and sign it. It was like an approval on the uh, ultimate finish of the painting yeah. to say, yes, you can send this out. This can go to our client or our customer. Um, and so I think what happened in the, or apparently happened in, in like that uh, middle of the 18th century and during the industrial revolution, the French industrial revolution is that um, painting started to become about like the thing in itself. It wasn't necessarily made for a patron. Mm-hmm. It was made for the sake of it being art. Yeah. And I think part of that had to do too with artists being like, well, we're not just, uh, we're not just out here making these factory paintings mm-hmm. that everyone can have in their homes. Now we're doing something sort of elevated, right. Um, that connects with the spirit, maybe the spirit of the times or this, that, and the other. And so then you start to get all these like philosophies like Immanuel Kant and, uh, Hegel, you know, with these ideas of uh, genius and, uh, the zeitgeist and originality and um, I think that that's what kind of happened in the early uh, 20th century. You started to kind of have that grow and blossom even more. Um, it was already starting to happen, I think, toward that turn of the century. But mm-hmm. I think it's a great book to read if you want to like read something pretty dry that discusses that change. But but we do have this issue of like looking back at everything and being like, oh, it's all art. It's all under the same camp and idea. We have all yeah. the same expectations of it, but they had different expectations. All those right. things, you know, it met, it met different reasons for its being. You know? I really feel like you're exploring some territory that is sort of new or just sort of like mm, exploring new pathways and new ways of approaching art uh, that isn't so rigid, perhaps, or trying to find new ways of going about things so keep doing what you're doing man I'm, i really <laughs> think so right. yeah. yeah so anyway thanks for thanks for taking the time yeah. Yeah. you can check out caleb's stuff again in the show notes click on those little links if you have any questions drop him a line dm him whatever hope he's okay with me saying that you can also dm us we are on instagram we have an email address those are also in the show notes i think that's about it until next time keep painting keep rubbing those eyes raw like chicken meat uh and go to the doctor see ya this is eyesore